you just take a minute to pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, I just want to ask you just one request as we prepare to open up the word that you inspired to be written and preserved down through history, protected, passed on to us. Lord, that you would you would meet with us here in the next 20, 30 minutes as this word is proclaimed as you already have and that you would open up our hearts and our minds to hear and understand so that we would really see what Christmas is about and apply it to our lives. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Thanks for coming. I'm fairly convinced that probably two things are true of most of you, if not all of you right now. Number one, you're a little distracted. Coming on the end of a probably about a three-week push in the busiest season of the year. Number two, you're probably a little exhausted, maybe a lot exhausted. Any yeah, uh uh-huh. Maybe some of these things have been happening to you over the last three weeks, that you about three weeks ago decided to do an entire interior decoration of your house, maybe inside and out. And then when you finish that, you have spent the last three weeks probably attending about 90% of the parties that you're going to attend for the entire year. And then you shopped till you dropped. And then, ladies, probably many of you went on a baking extravaganza. And the one benefit of that is that on your sugar high, you were able to write a personal letter to everyone that you've ever met in your life. Sometimes in the rush of Christmas, in the secular trappings and the festivities, we can miss out on the sacred. Christmas is sacred. And I believe that probably you're here because you know that. What I want to do for the next few minutes here is I want I want us to just try to turn down the noise and slow down, take our foot off the accelerator for a minute here. Matter of fact, let's just, as we pause here, let's just, let's just take a deep breath, okay? Ready? Go. No sleeping now, but Christmas is really a sacred time. And what I want to do here is I want to I want to tell you a few things about Christmas so that it remains sacred, so that you really participate in tonight and tomorrow in what Christmas is really all about. I'm going to tell you three things about Christmas, but before I do that, what I want to do is I want to really give you the one foundational piece about the entire Christmas story. Now, this this is going to sound maybe ridiculous because it's so obvious, but I think it's important to mention this. 
because we can just be flying through the season if we're not careful and miss it. Here is how the Christmas story in Luke's letter, I mean, I'm sorry, in Matthew's letter opens up. This is the opening line in Matthew chapter 118 on the Christmas story. Matthew wrote this, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. Right there is what Christmas is all about. Christmas is all about Jesus Christ. That is what makes Christmas sacred. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, if you and I are not keeping Christ at the very, as the very centerpiece in the spotlight of Christmas, we are really not celebrating Christmas. We can be celebrating a festivity or a holiday, but not Christmas, not the first Christmas. So what I want to do is I want to keep Christ at the center and I want to bring the sacred into this Christmas season by telling you three things about Jesus Christ from the Christmas story. Three truths that will help keep Christmas sacred or maybe for you for the first time help Christmas to become sacred to you. Three truths that come in the form of three questions, and they are these. Who is Jesus? Why did He come? And what did He do? Who is Jesus? Why did He come? What did He do? It's going to be very simple but profound truth. Here's the first question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? What does the Christmas story tell us about the identity of the one who is the very bedrock and the foundation and the focal point of Christmas? First of all, we're going to go 700 years back in history prior to the first Christmas to a man by the name of Isaiah Isaiah, writing about seven centuries before Jesus was ever born, was inspired by God, looked into the future, and as a prophet, he saw who the one coming, this great promised one, would be. And here's what he wrote in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Isaiah said, let me give you the cliff notes right there. Isaiah said that the man, this Jesus that would come, would be the man who is God. He was going to be a child born who would be the mighty God. That was Isaiah, 700 years before the first Christmas. Now go to Matthew in the story of the first Christmas. Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 1, 22 and 23 about the identity of Jesus Christ. He wrote, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, 
which means God with us. Matthew told us right there that Jesus, this son of Mary, this human child, was going to be Emmanuel. He was the God who was going to become man. That, folks, is the consistent story of Scripture. It is that Jesus, born of Mary, is God in the flesh. Matthew there in that verse, those two verses, Matthew 21, Matthew 1, 22, and 23, he told us about the method through which Jesus was born. And I just want to point it out because it relates to his identity. It says that Jesus was not conceived in the natural process. That the Spirit of God performed a miracle and placed the seed of Jesus inside the womb of Mary so that the child that was born was unlike any other child, born in the flesh of man, but actually very God in the flesh. That's what makes all the difference right there in the Christmas story. I am aware that maybe you are, that there are many in what I'd call the kind of the liberal dimension uh, of the church, that, that what they want to do is that they want to factor out the incarnation, that God coming down from heaven into the womb of Mary in the flesh, that they want to take the virgin birth out of the Christmas story. And by doing so, that they can make Jesus Christ something less than God. There are many who claim Christianity that would struggle with a belief in the virgin birth, in the incarnation, in the divinity of Jesus. Folks, I believe, I believe with every fiber of my being that you cannot, you cannot take the message of the Bible and the message of Christianity and separate it from the virgin birth, the incarnation, the divinity of Jesus. That if you strip that from it, you have just stripped it of all truth that matters for you. That without that, it is just like a fairy tale story that has no power to touch your life. The consistent message of Scripture is that Jesus is the God-man. Let me illustrate that. I want, it's my heart that no one that attends Cornerstone Church would be comfortable in discounting the incarnation and the divinity of Jesus Christ. That it'd be really hard to come to that conclusion attending here. Let me illustrate what I mean by that. In the New Testament, we have what is probably eight authors that wrote the New Testament, depending upon uh, one of the letters who you think wrote one of the letters, but 
would say most consider there were eight different authors that wrote the New Testament. If we ask this question, if we believe that Jesus was not born of a virgin, was not in God incarnate in the flesh, so that we would read through the New Testament and every author that wrote about Jesus being the God-man, fully God, fully man, expressions like, and this is what that means, the Lord Jesus Christ, that's identifying His humanity and His divinity. If we would take the eight authors of the New Testament and we would remove any of them that made that claim, discredit them as reliable witnesses, do you know how many of the eight we would have left? Anybody want to guess? Zero. Zero. Let me make it even more pointed. There are 27 books of the Bible in the New Testament. Let's say maybe some of those authors wrote multiple letters or books of the New Testament. Maybe they changed their mind from one to another. So let's just take the letters by themselves and said, well, let's just remove any letter of the 27 that claims that Jesus is the God-man and discredit it, and let's find out what we would have left, okay? Matthew, we've got to get rid of Matthew. I get rid of Mark. Luke and John, they're gone. Acts is gone. Romans is gone. First and second Corinthians, they got to go. Galatians, Galatians is gone. Ephesians is gone. And Ephesians and Philippians, I guess I threw two at once. Colossians, first and second Thessalonians, those letters have got to go. First and second Timothy, Paul's letters to Timothy, they got to go. Titus, Philemon, no good. Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, they got to go. First and Second John, gone. Jude and Revelation. Anybody pick up on the one that I missed? Third John. One letter out of twenty-six that does not identify Jesus as God in the flesh. One more exercise here to make it even stronger. Let's go by volume of New Testament. In this Bible right here, the New Testament covers 235 pages of print. So I did some calculating here. I could get one page of the New Testament print, and it would take, it would fill up two and a half of these three-by-five cards. That means that the entire New Testament would be printed on about 580 of these cards. If all we kept was the third letter of John, do you know how many cards that would cover? That's it. One card out of 580 if you remove the incarnation, the divinity, the letters that refer to that, you have one index card of truth 
by which to live your life. That is how significant the incarnation, the virgin birth, the incarnation, the divinity of Jesus Christ is to the Christmas story. If you remove that, you've got no story. All of the truth of Scripture hangs upon that reality. So Christmas then was designed by God, but it wasn't only designed by God, it was accomplished by God. That was God in the animal feeding trough. That's the answer to the who question. Now, the why. Doesn't that answer beg the why? I mean, if this is God over here in the animal feeding trough, God doesn't do anything without a reason. He left His eternal throne of glory and majesty to go to an animal feeding trough. He had to have a reason for that. And it's my guess that He wants us to know what the reason is. In fact, God is so concerned, committed to us knowing the answer to the why, that right in the Christmas story, as soon as He announced who Jesus would be through the angel, He announced why He was coming. Listen, Matthew, again, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21 this is the angel talking to Joseph about his fiancée Mary who is betrothed to him but has been found to be with child. And Joseph is in a major dilemma. And the angel comes to him and says, She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Did you hear the why? Why? Listen very carefully. He, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. Two things I want to point out about that statement. I want you to notice in that statement the singular tone of it. Did you hear it? It doesn't leave any room for anyone else doing any saving. It is Jesus Christ that will come and perform the role of Savior. It doesn't leave any room for anyone else even to partner with Him in that role. It's the story of God Himself coming down to save His people from their sins. And He doesn't need any help. And so He made the language very exclusive. But that's not all that's here. It also says what kind of salvation he came to bring. Now, let me just make this as clear as I can. I think most people want a Savior, but not everybody wants the same salvation. Let me say that one more time. I think most everybody would welcome a Savior, but not everybody wants the same salvation. Do you know the Jews of Matthew's day 
They wanted a Savior who would free them from the tyranny of Rome. In fact, they missed Jesus as the Savior because he didn't come to save them the way they wanted saved. Jesus, or the angel here, clearly identified the type of salvation that the God-man was coming to perform. He was coming to perform a salvation to save us from our sins. You see, that's what Christmas is all about. It's not about a jolly bearded man with a fetish for red velour and a thyroid problem. It's not what it's about. The story of Christmas is not about, listen, it's not even about the cuddly little infant in the animal feeding trough that is meant to be adored one day a year and ignored 364 days. That's not what it's about. The story of Christmas is the story about man having a hopeless problem, a serious eternal problem, and the God of heaven stepping into mankind's reality in mankind's flesh, becoming fully God and fully man so that he could deal with the problem of man's sin. That's what the story of Christmas is about. That's why we don't just have a manger here. We've got a backdrop to the manger. We've got something overshadowing the manger. And that's going to bring us to the third question and the third answer. But let me first read 1 John 3, 5. John wrote, you know that Jesus appeared in order to take away sins. So if the answer to the who question is Jesus is 100% God, 100% man, and the answer to the why did he come question is that he come, came to take care of the sins of humanity, then that begs the third question. What did he do to do that? What did he do? That has got to be a part of the Christmas story because without that part, it makes no sense. If you just leave God right here, it's a ludicrous story. You got to find out what he did to accomplish why he came. Isaiah, the same prophet that we looked at earlier that wrote about who the child would be, he also wrote about what the child would do to accomplish his mission in Isaiah 53, 5. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. Or he didn't actually write Jesus, he wrote he. He was looking forward to the promised child, but it was Jesus he was writing about. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. You see, the death of Jesus, his sacrifice, his wounds, his piercing, 
He paid our sins and provided our salvation through the sacrifice. He came to save us from our sins, and the way He did that was through the piercing and the crushing, the wounding, and the dying. That's how He did it. God's co-equal, co-eternal Son wrapped Himself in human flesh so that He could have that flesh nailed to the cross. He came in this frail flesh so that He could nail it right there. The birth of Jesus was simply a setup for the death of Jesus. Without that, the story doesn't make any sense. The manger was the door. The cross was the destination. He was conceived in the womb so that he could be concealed in the tomb. Blood flowed through his veins so that it could flow from his wounds and provide forgiveness for your sin and mine. That's why God came in the flesh. That's why we have the cross overshadowing the manger. It is meant to really tell the whole story of Christmas. And I would even add one more item. We don't have it here on the stage, but just to state the truth visible here, but don't leave Jesus on the cross. He died, but he's not dead. Did you hear that? He died, but he's not dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 4, Paul wrote, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. As of first importance, Paul said, this is it. This is critical. This is essential to the message that Christ died for our sins according with the Scriptures that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And then He goes on to say that after He came alive, He appeared to hundreds of people who saw Him, who were still alive when He wrote that. See, we begin by talking about how to, in the midst of the rush of the secular be sure to come and focus on the sacred to see what Christmas was about. The way that you're going to understand what Christmas is about is that you keep Christ as the centerpiece, the spotlight consistently and unmovably on Him. And in addition to that, you have the backdrop of the manger and the cross and the empty tomb because all of those are the story of Christmas. You remove any of those and the story does not make sense. So, that answers the three questions about Jesus. What about the one question about you? Here's what you 
do at Christmas time. You either come as a celebration of the season and you kind of pause long enough to look at the manger and remember the cute nativity scene and the baby with the shepherds and the wise men and let that last you until next holiday season. But if you do that, you've missed it. You've totally missed it. You see, Jesus came as the God-man so that he could save you and redeem you and forgive you of sins so that you would give your life to him. So that you would accept his forgiveness and make him your Lord. So that you would bow with the shepherds and the wise men before the child in true worship and say, you are God. I believe what you did for me and I put my faith in you and you alone. Romans chapter 10, 9 and 10. Here is how the salvation that Christmas offers through the death and resurrection of Jesus can be yours. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with mouth one confesses and is saved. You know, God has as a creative God and his creative fiat, he's made many ways through which we can worship him. We can worship him through song. We can worship him through giving, through our service. You know, God made the arts. He made music and drama and ability of dance and what we're going to get to do now is we're just going to continue the worship of the child and I think you're going to see this clearly as we through the arts let a young lady come and minister an act of worship to us
our Christmas Eve here lighting our center candle, candle representing Christ. Christ came to save our sins. He came to bring light into a dark world, light into your life. He did that through his holy life, his sacrificial willing death, and his victorious resurrection. So what we're going to do now is we're going to just through another symbol that tells the same great truth, we're going to celebrate the sacrifice, the willing sacrifice of Jesus Christ to save us from sin through communion. Ushers, would you come? What communion is, if you're not familiar with this, it is something that Jesus himself, the night before his crucifixion, told us to do to remember him. He took the bread and he broke it and the wine and he passed it and he said, whenever you eat and drink these, do it to remember me. So it's really a remembrance of his sacrifice to save you. And it is for everyone who believes that Jesus is the God-man and that he came and through his death died to save them from sin and they put their faith in Christ salvation. That's who communion is for. And it can be maybe the first time that you take it as you accept Christ right now as your Savior. Put your faith in who He is and what He's done for you. You receive that as it's passed if you would like.